everyone. My name is Jamon McKinney, or you can just call me Juice because that is my nickname. Welcome, everyone, to the Juice Alert, episode number 26. If you have not subscribed to the Juice Alert already, be sure to do that right about now. You will not regret it. You can find me on YouTube as well as podcasting platforms. That includes Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all that great stuff. A lot of great topics to discuss on the show today for you, ladies and gentlemen. I have about 20 topics I'm going to cover today. We're going to talk about Patrick Mahomes, the Pittsburgh Steelers. We'll talk about Joe Burrow, Aaron Rodgers, Taysom Hill, the Philadelphia Eagles, Carson Wentz. A lot of stuff to talk about here. Before I get the show started and rolling, I want to say, if you have not already liked this video, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button right about now. It definitely helps me out on this channel. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I have a personal Instagram account. That Instagram account is at G-H-I-M-A-N underscore M-C-K-I-N-N-E-Y. And the, and the Instagram account for the Juice Alert, you know, where you can get updates in regards to the show, that Instagram account is the Juicler underscore. You can also follow both accounts on Twitter as well. My personal Twitter account is at G-H-I-M-A-N-M-C-K-I-N-N-E-Y. And the Juicelert's Twitter account is at the Juice Alert. Also, very quickly, I want to mention that I did have a Taysom Hill and PJ Walker topic plan for this show. Those two topics will be on the YouTube version of this episode, but they will not be on the podcasting version of this episode for my audio version listeners. So if you want to hear some of my thoughts about PJ Walker and Taysom Hill, those two segments will be in the YouTube version of the of the show on YouTube. I have no limitations as to why I can post on YouTube in regards to my content. Sometimes I am limited as far as what I can post on audio platforms, but there's no worries. That will be on YouTube. Just want to point that out for you guys really quickly before I start the show. Okay, let's kick off the show by talking about the Dallas Cowboys, a.k.a. the Dallas Cowgirls, because ladies and gentlemen, I know all of you probably watch the Dallas Cowboys lose 41 to 16 to Washington last week. They they really, you know, the, the game was close for a while. I'll, I'll admit that the game was fairly close for a while, but then the Dallas Cowboys started doing Dallas Cowboys stuff. They had a fake punt on 4th and 10 that Mike McCarthy decided to call for whatever reason. I don't know why. I mean, you have four. It was in the fourth quarter. You had 12 minutes left in the game. It was still a one-possession game. There was no reason to call a fake punt on Mike McCarthy's behalf. Um, they decided to throw the ball at one point on forfeit inches instead of handing the football off to Ezekiel Elliott. But no, Mike McCarthy says I'm gonna I'm gonna try to pass the football in this situation versus the number one passing defense at the time, that being Washington's passing defense, Ezekiel Elliott. He had a bad fumble in this game. You know, in Dallas, they just missed several opportunities. And by the way, shout out to Washington. They've got some good young players. You look at Chase Young, you look at Montez Sweat, Terry McLaurin, Antonio Gibson. Washington has some really good young players, you know. And Ron Rivera, shout out to Ron Rivera. He definitely has Washington moving in the right direction. But folks, as we speak today, whether Dallas Cowboy fans want to admit it or not, 
they need to start rebuilding because this roster is nowhere close to being to being a Super Bowl caliber roster. Right now, Dallas has the worst team and the worst head coach in the worst division in all football. Now, I'm not saying Dallas is as bad as the Jacksonvilles or the New York Jets of the world. They're not worse than the Jets or the Jags. But in the worst division in all of football, Dallas has the worst head coach, and they've got the worst roster. They're not close to Green Bay right now. They're not close to the Saints right now. They're not close to the Buccaneers right now. Heck, they're not even close to any of the teams in the NFC West right now from a coaching and talent perspective. And they're not even better than the Carolina Panthers right now as we speak today. I mentioned worst head coach in the division. Yes, despite Mike McCarthy being a Super Bowl winning head coach, I got to say, first of all, he's one of the worst Super Bowl winning head coaches of all time. You you can attribute him winning those Super Bowls to the bad man in Green Bay named Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers, you know, we see Mike McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers. Guess what? They both split up. McCarthy last year couldn't find a job. Last year, Aaron Rodgers, he gets to an NFC title game. This year, Aaron Rodgers looks like the NFL MVP, maybe outside of Patrick Mahomes, and Mike McCarthy He's not getting it done in Dallas as we speak today. You know, the Dallas fan base has turned on Mike McCarthy. A lot of them have. And honestly, I got to say, I think a lot of players probably have as well, whether they will admit it or not. Right now, today, Joe Judge is a better football coach than Mike McCarthy. Right now, today, Ron Rivera is a better football coach than Mike McCarthy. And Doug Peterson is a better football coach today than Mike McCarthy. Keep in mind. Doug Peterson won a Super Bowl with Nick Foles as his starting quarterback. You know, so that's not comparable to winning a Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers because you should win a Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers, okay? And listen, man, you know, this this team has an aging offensive line. The defense is terrible. Ezekiel Elliott continues to decline year after year as the offensive line gets worse and worse. He's on a terrible contract. He's overpaid. And this team does not have Dak Prescott signed to a long-term deal. And that's a bad, that's, that's not good because, see, here's the thing. Even if you start to pay Dak Prescott in the offseason, if you franchise tag him or you sign him to a long-term deal, are you sure Dak Prescott is worth anywhere from 40 plus million dollars per year? Because over the last three seasons, Dak Prescott is 7-17 seven and 17 versus teams with a winning record. Okay, Dak Prescott's a very good quarterback. He's not a great quarterback, and he has not proven that he can carry a bad roster to the playoffs. And right now, Dallas, they've got a roster that's very top-heavy with a lot of bad contracts, and I don't think Dak Prescott can overcome this team. And honestly, if I'm Dak Prescott, I'm thinking about leaving. I really am because... You could go to a team like Washington, who's in your own division. They might be looking for a quarterback next year. You could go to San Francisco. Who knows what Jimmy Garoppolo's future is right there. You could go to Chicago. You know, Mitchell Trubisky, Nick Foles, they're not cutting it. You could go to New Orleans if they're now sold on Jameis Winston. Or if Tom Brady retires, the Buccaneers might want a quarterback for the future. You could potentially maybe go to Tampa Bay. There's going to be a lot of options out there for Dak Prescott. He will get an opportunity to go play for a better head coach. He will get an opportunity to go play for another um, really good team with a better roster. Maybe the Indianapolis Colts need a quarterback after this year, you know? 
And listen, Dallas, don't tell me that you're that you're that. Oh, Dak Prescott got hurt. He's the re. If he was, if he wasn't hurt, we'd be leading this division by a mile. No, you wouldn't, because when Dak Prescott was healthy, you were an Atlanta Falcons onside kick away from being 0-4 to start the season with Dak Prescott as your starting quarterback. And that's just a fact. That's not an opinion. That's not a myth. That's a fact. Okay. And I look at Jerry Jones, this guy, Jerry Jones, he constantly has paid the wrong people. He's whiffed on several head coaches. McCarthy's not the future. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat anything. Um, and I think that Jerry Jones needs to hit the, hit the reset button. I think Dallas would be best served drafting a, drafting a young quarterback, trading some of their assets away and try to rebuild up this football team. Because even if Dak Prescott comes back healthy next year, this is not a Super Bowl caliber roster. Not even close. Not even close. You have a lot of bad contracts right now. Ezekiel Elliott, Demarcus Lawrence, Amari Cooper, you know, Jalen Smith, Tyrone Smith. You can make the argument that all those guys are overpaid right now. So, and then you, then you still got to pay Dak Prescott potentially, and he'd probably be overpaid if he gets $40 plus million per year. Listen, I'm not trying to bash Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott is a good solid quarterback. He is not worth 40 plus million dollars per year. So that's where I'm at with the Dallas Cowboys. I think they're best served um, hitting the reset button or rebuilding. If Justin Fields is staring them in the eyes, they need to take Justin Fields. They need to start over at quarterback. They need to take Justin Fields, take Zach Wilson, you know, take your swing at, swing at another quarterback, you know, because I'm not paying Dak Prescott 40 plus million dollars with how bad this roster is right now. You've already whiffed on not paying Dak Prescott. And just because you whiffed on that in the first place doesn't mean that you need to justify it now. So I move on. I rebuild the team. The Dallas Cowboys are an absolute mess. And Jerry Jones is the biggest person to blame for the state of the Dallas Cowboys as we speak today. Okay. So the Pittsburgh Steelers are 11-0 currently. Uh, heading into week three, uh, not week three, heading into week 13, pardon me, of the 2020 NFL season. And look, everyone knows Pittsburgh is very, very talented. Ben Roethlisberger's a top 10 quarterback. The offensive line is great. They've got really good wide receivers. The defense has been lights out pretty much all year. Now, I will say, Bud Dupree and Devin Bush are out for the season now for Pittsburgh. Devin Bush obviously got injured earlier in the season. Bud Dupree recently got hurt versus the Baltimore Ravens uh, this past week, so he's going to be out for the full. He's going to be out the rest of the way. Those are two huge losses. But again, when you look at Pittsburgh, they're very, very deep. They're a well-run team. They've got players that can that they can just plug in and say, "Hey, you know, fill this guy's role. They'll be fine." They're still a Super Bowl caliber team that is more than capable of winning Super Bowl 55. However, I'm concerned that this Pittsburgh Steelers team has sort of peaked. I really am. Now, a lot of people are saying that Pittsburgh Steelers are overrated. They play no good teams. They're a fraudulent 11-0 football team. I disagree. I don't think Pittsburgh is overrated. However, I do believe in teams peaking at the wrong time. I think Pittsburgh might have already peaked, and that's a little bit of a concern because you look at this Baltimore Ravens game from this past week, that game was won by Pittsburgh 19-14. Uh, to 14. They beat Robert Griffin III and Trace McSorley by five points at home. That's concerning. If you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, 
I don't know how you're not concerned about your football team going forward because Baltimore in that game missed the extra point. Ben Rousberger, he threw an interception in the red zone. You know, the, the Steelers, they were fumbling on kickoffs. The Baltimore Ravens dropped a touchdown pass that really could have served them well going into halftime. There were a lot of missed opportunities and drop passes by Pittsburgh Steelers wide receivers. And like I mentioned earlier, you beat Robert Griffin III and Trace McSorley by five points. The Baltimore Ravens virtually were rolling out a practice squad. The Baltimore had about 15 plus players, you know, not playing in this game due to COVID. Okay, that that's concerning. Okay, you should be destroying the Baltimore Ravens if that's the case, you know. And I look at teams like Seattle, New Orleans, Buffalo, Green Bay. Those teams are ascending as we get later into the year. Pittsburgh, they're descending, and I understand Pittsburgh has a point differential of plus 129. That's very, very good. But I will say, my eyes, the stats don't align with what I see with my own two eyes. I always go by the eye test, and the statistics match, match what I see on film and watch what I see on tape when I watch these games, then I'm convinced. I'm not convinced that Pittsburgh is quite as good as their record, okay? You know, and... Pittsburgh, you know, they have some good wins on their schedule. They've beaten Cleveland, they've beaten Tennessee, and they've beaten Baltimore. But they also barely beat the Denver Broncos, who are not a good football team. They barely beat Houston, who's not a good football team. They only beat the Giants by 10 points. And at that time, the New York football Giants were not a very good team. As we speak today, the Giants are much improved. They got them, they got them in week number one. It'd be very interesting to see how well Pittsburgh plays them right now as we speak today. You know, they barely escaped a terrible Dallas Cowboys team. And for what it's worth, the Tennessee Titans game was impressive, but they only won that game by three points despite dominating most of the way. So all I'm trying to say is Pittsburgh, the standard is the Kansas City Chiefs, okay? You're going to have to go through that team. Now, I understand that Kansas City is not 11-0 like Pittsburgh is, but they're 10-1. They're the defending Super Bowl champions. Pittsburgh hasn't won a Super Bowl in over a decade. So... I gotta give the I gotta give the Kansas City Chiefs the benefit of the doubt and say they're the team to beat. And Pittsburgh, they're not dominating some of the teams that they should be dominating. They can't consistently run the football. You know, they've not gotten the running game going all year. That's a concern. And if you cannot run the football and keep Patrick Mahomes off the field, then you're going to fall to the Kansas City Chiefs. That Pittsburgh Steelers team that we saw versus Baltimore, they're not coming close to be in the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm talking about the Baltimore Ravens game this past week, not the first Ravens game when Lamar Jackson obviously played, okay? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where Pittsburgh's a very good team. They definitely deserve our respect, and they definitely are better than the Tennessees, the Buffaloes, the Indianapolises, the Clevelands of the world. But I'm not sure if they're quite as good as Kansas City. I'm not sure if this Steelers team, as I speak today, is good enough to knock out Kansas City despite getting Kansas City at home if the playoffs start today. But only time will tell. Speaking of the Kansas City Chiefs, um, they're the best team in the NFL, in my opinion, right now. They just beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on the road 27-24 to during Week 12 of the 2020 NFL season. And heading into Week 13, I think the Kansas City Chiefs should be your Super Bowl 55 favorites. You know, Patrick Mahomes, 
best quarterback in the entire NFL, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, Le'Veon Bell, two really good running backs. The wide receiver core is really, really good. You know, Tyreek Hill, he's virtually he's virtually unstoppable at this point right now. It's hard to cover that guy. Travis Kelsey, same thing can be said for him. At the tight end position, they've got multiple good weapons for Patrick Mahomes to throw to. Really good offensive line. The defense does worry me a little bit, but for what it's worth, the defense is a top 10 unit in points per game allowed. They're giving up the six fewest points on average this season. Now, they will give up yards because right now they're ranked 18th as far as total defense. But it's pretty clear that Kansas City, they're the most talented team in all football as we speak today. However, just like the Pittsburgh Steelers, when it comes to the Kansas City Chiefs, I'm a tad bit concerned. Just because a lot of people are assuming that the Kansas City Chiefs are locks to win the Super Bowl. And I'm not sure if they're locks to win the Super Bowl like everyone else, you know. Um, I don't see sheer dominance on a consistent basis from the Kansas City Chiefs, you know. And a lot of people can say, well, they dominated the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this past weekend. Yes, for the most part, they did pretty much dominate the Buccaneers from start to finish. But in the end, I look at the box score, I watched the game. That was a three-point game. They only won by three points. They were three points better than a struggling Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Only three points better. Hmm, not so sure if that's a great sign. Um, You know, the great thing about the NFL is it's not a best of seven series like in the NBA when it comes to the playoffs. You know, what made the Golden State Warriors dynasty when Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and Klay Thompson were all going well together, what made them so lethal was you had to beat that team um, four times in a best of seven series. You had to beat Kansas City one time. So that's the key thing. And I think Kansas City can be had on any given Sunday in the playoffs if they face a good team that's focused, that executes at a high level. Keep in mind, Kansas City barely beat the Chargers. They they had to go to overtime with Justin Herbert in his first ever start in the NFL. They did dominate the Baltimore Ravens for the most part, but at one point in that game, that was a seven-point game in the fourth quarter. They were not as dominant as you would think versus Baltimore. They struggled versus the Patriots. Patrick Mahomes did not play particularly well. I'd argue that if Cam Newton played in that game, the Patriots probably would have beaten the Chiefs. This Kansas City Chiefs team could have easily lost twice to the Raiders. And keep in mind, folks, the Atlanta Falcons are not a good football team, and they destroyed the Raiders. You barely could beat the Raiders. Also, you barely beat Carolina at home. Barely beat Carolina at home. Carolina is not an elite team by any stretch of the matter, you know? And what concerns me about Kansas City is their run defense. They have the sixth worst run defense in the entire NFL as we speak today. Why is that significant? The best way to beat Patrick Mahomes is to keep the guy off the field. If you can run the football effectively, control the clock, and keep Patrick Mahomes off the field, I think you get you have a good opportunity to beat the Kansas City Chiefs. I really think you do have an opportunity to do so, you know? So, listen, man. Don't be surprised if a team like the Raiders, the Steelers, or the Buffalo Bills knocks off the Kansas City Chiefs come playoff time. Tennessee matches up pretty well with the Kansas City Chiefs. The Indianapolis Colts, they are a team to look out for just simply because they have the horses on defense to stop Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs if they are at full strength. The Indianapolis Colts, they can drop, they can just drop seven people into coverage. They can, they can get home with four rushers. And they will force Patrick Mahomes 
to be patient. And if Patrick Mahomes makes a mistake or two, I'm confident the Colts have the opportunity to capitalize on those mistakes, okay? So, listen, man, I'm not saying Kansas City is overrated. I'm not saying Kansas City is not going to get back to the Super Bowl. All I'm saying is, before you say that Kansas City is a Super Bowl lock, I'll pause a little bit because Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers, they're pretty good. Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks, they're pretty good. Ben Roethlisberger and the Pittsburgh Steelers, they're pretty good. And any given Sunday, anything can happen. And keep in mind, the Kansas City Chiefs were down double digits in all three of their playoff wins in route to winning the Super Bowl last year. That is not a healthy way to win football games. Usually when you're down 24 to nothing, usually when you're down 10 to nothing, you usually don't come back in some of these playoff games. So Kansas City, congratulations. You came back in those games last year. You won a Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes is amazing. But that same luck may not bounce your way in the playoffs in 2020. So that's all I'm saying, folks. Despite the Kansas City Chiefs being probably the odds-on favorites to win Super Bowl 55, they are far from a lock to win Super Bowl 55, in my opinion. All right, everyone. So I want to praise Patrick Mahomes a little bit in the segment right here. Patrick Mahomes, as we speak today, is obviously the best quarterback in all football. He threw 50 touchdown passes in his first season ever as a starter. He followed it up the very next year, winning a Super Bowl, and this year, Patrick Mahomes very well could do both those things. He could very well win regular season MVP, and he very well could win the Super Bowl once again in 2020. He's that good, and this Kansas City Chiefs team is that good. And in my opinion, actually not even in my opinion, I don't think it's up for debate really, Patrick Mahomes is on pace to shatter nearly every single NFL record. He's on pace to do that if he plays another 15 to 20 seasons. And by the way, that's not out of the question. I think that a lot of quarterbacks are playing a lot longer than they have in the past. Tom Brady, Drew Brees, they're still they're still going strong into their 40s. Phillip Rivers, he's still playing at a, at a fairly high level based on his age. Aaron Rodgers, he's not slowing down. He's on pace for a career high in touchdown passes despite being 37 years old. Patrick Mahomes, it's not out of the question this guy can have a 15 to 20 year career. And if he if he has a 15 to 20 year career, he will shatter pretty much virtually every single NFL record. Drew Brees, Patrick Mahomes is coming for your records. Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes is coming for your records, man. Patrick Mahomes recently a couple weeks ago became the fastest player in NFL history to reach 100 career touchdown passes based on the amount of games that he has played. Patrick Mahomes reached that mark in 40 career games. So it only took him 40 career games to get to 100 career touchdown passes. It took Peyton Manning 70 career games to get to that same mark. It took Drew Brees 50 games to get to that same mark. It took Tom Brady 57 games, and it took Aaron Rodgers 59 games. So Patrick Mahomes, he's off to a pretty fast start in his career, man. And this season, Patrick Mahomes is on pace for 43 touchdown passes, which will, for his career, put him at a, put him at 119 touchdown passes in only his fourth season in the NFL, third season starting. So I try, I did a little bit of math right here. Patrick Mahomes, if he if he finishes with 43 touchdown passes this year, 
he'll be averaging around 39.6 touchdown passes per season. Now, I figure that's a little bit high. Eventually, over time, you know, the roster could get depleted. There could be some injuries. So, I, I decided to do a little calculation. I calculated some things, and I said, if Patrick Mahomes averages 35 touchdown passes over the next 10 years, I wonder what that would put him at. I'll give you the answer. That would put him at 469 career touchdown passes. That would be good for fifth all-time on the current NFL list right now. And by the way, at that point, he'd still only be 35 years old. So if Patrick Mahomes continues to play at the pace that he's playing, if he plays for about another 10 years, he'll be already top 10 or top 5 all time in pretty much every single statistical category by about age 35. And I said to myself, okay, let's see if he can go a little bit further. You know, let's see how good Patrick Mahomes would be if he plays into his 40s. So I said, okay, over the next 15 years, if Patrick Mahomes averages 30 touchdowns a season, Let's see how many touchdowns he will have thrown by his age 40 season. He will have gotten to 569 career touchdowns by the age of 40 if he does what I just said he could do. Okay, guess what? That will be ahead of Tom Brady because right now, Tom Brady is the all-time touchdown pass leader with 566 career touchdown passes. So pretty much all I'm saying, people, is if Patrick Mahomes averages around 30 touchdowns a season for the next 15 to 20 years, he's going to shatter pretty much all these records, man. And not to mention, I think Patrick Mahomes will probably, you know, continue to get the Super Bowls. You know, he, he may not win six Super Bowls like Tom Brady, but I can see Patrick Mahomes at least winning two more Super Bowls before his career is over. I could easily see Patrick Mahomes being the all-time leader in career passing yards when it's all said and done. He'll at least challenge Drew Brees. In fact, if Patrick Mahomes averages 4,500 passing yards for the next 15 seasons, that's going to give him 67 1,500 yards to add to his total already, so that would put him around 71,000 passing yards, which would be good for fourth all-time on the all-time passing yards list, only behind Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, and Drew Brees would be the only quarterbacks ahead of Patrick Mahomes, and he still would have a couple more seasons left in his tank because he'd be at, he'd be around 40 years old. Tom Brady, what's Tom Brady right now? Tom Brady's either 45 He's, is he 45, 44 years old, something like that? It's not out the possibility that Patrick Mahomes, based on the way that, that NFL teams operate, based on the, you know, A-plus medical facilities we have, based on the treatment these players get, based on how much these players invest in their body, it's not crazy to think that we can see Patrick Mahomes playing football until he's 45 years old, and by that time, He'll probably have well over 70,000 passing yards. He'll probably have around 600 career touchdown passes. He'll probably have about five or six NFL MVPs when it's all said and done. Very well could win the MVP this year. And based on the way his team is looking and based on the organization that he plays for, which is an A-plus at GM, they've got a very good head coach. They've given, him a great, they've given him a great roster. They draft well. It's a pretty big market. The, the team and the, and the front office is not afraid to spend money on free agents. They're not afraid to make trades. 
I think that they can make the necessary moves to allow Patrick Mahomes to get to about three or four more Super Bowls. You know, maybe more than that. We'll have to see, man. You know, who's really challenging Kansas City right now in the AFC? Not a whole lot of people outside of Pittsburgh are close to Kansas City. Buffalo, maybe. Houston, if they get a better head coach, maybe. Cleveland, are you trusting Baker Mayfield to go head-to-head with Patrick Holmes? I'm not so sure. Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens, can they make the playoffs this year? I'm not sure, you know. So all I'm trying to say, people, is Patrick Mahomes, he might become the Michael Jordan of football when it's all said and done because this guy, he's on pace to shatter nearly every single record. He's amazing. He's great. He's going to win a lot of games. He's the total package, man. He really is. He's as close to a perfect quarterback as you can get. Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers are as close to perfect quarterbacks as it gets. You know, A-plus arm. They've got, they're very accurate down the field. They're mobile. They're great competitors. Patrick Mahomes is coachable. And he's everything you want. He's everything you look for at the quarterback position. So, yeah, man, Patrick Mahomes, by the time his career is over, he could very easily shatter every single NFL record. No doubt about it. Okay, let me shift to Ben Roethlisberger and the 2004 NFL Draft. So, obviously, we all know about the 2004 NFL Draft, the year where Eli Manning, Ben Roethlisberger, and Phillip Rivers were all drafted in the same draft, okay? And I think that's pretty safe to say that Ben Roethlisberger, there's overwhelming evidence that Ben Roethlisberger is the best quarterback from that draft class. You know, for a while... I said that Eli Manning might be the best quarterback from that draft class, but over time, my opinions change when new evidence presents itself. I thought about this topic, I slept on it, and I came to the conclusion that I was wrong. Ben Roethlisberger is the best quarterback from the 2004 NFL Draft, you know. Um, First of all, Ben Roethlisberger in 2020 is having an unbelievable season, you know. Um, completing about 67% of his throws. He's got 24 touchdown passes, five interceptions on the season, a pass rate over 100, and the Pittsburgh Steelers are now undefeated. They were 8-8 eight eight last year due to, ben, due to Ben Roethlisberger's injury. Now they're undefeated at 11-0, hanging to Week 13 versus Washington, okay? Now, when evaluating who's the best quarterback from the 2004 NFL Draft between Ben Roethlisberger Eli Manning and Phillip Rivers, I'm going to eliminate Phillip Rivers from this conversation, you know. Phillip Rivers is a good quarterback, no doubt about it, and definitely should get some consideration for the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. But he's just not accomplished enough, you know. He, he's never been to a Super Bowl, never won a Super Bowl, because if you've never been to a Super Bowl, you never won a Super Bowl, obviously. In the playoffs, he's got a 5-6 and six playoff record. In those playoff games, he's completing 59% of his passes, Throwing 14 touchdowns to 10 interceptions. He's missed the playoffs 10 times in his career. And for what it's worth, Phillip Rivers has never really consistently been on top of the food chain. There was maybe a season or two where you could say Phillip Rivers was a top five quarterback at some point in his career, but he was never consistently among the tier one quarterbacks. He was always a very good tier two quarterback, definitely a top 10 quarterback for most of his prime, but didn't quite reach the heights that Ben Roethlisberger reached. Is not accomplished as Eli Manning. I'm going to eliminate him. So it comes down to Eli Manning and Ben Roethlisberger. Now, initially, I said that Eli Manning 
ranked higher on the all-time list than Ben Roethlisberger, and that he actually was the best quarterback from this draft class about six months ago, just because I said he's shown the ability to beat Tom Brady when it matters most. Ben Roethlisberger's record versus, versus Tom Brady, it's awful. It's horrible. And for what it's worth, Eli Manning is a two-time Super Bowl champion. He's got two Super Bowl MVPs. Ben Roethlisberger has zero Super Bowl MVPs. And I can argue that Eli Manning got to got the two Super Bowls and beat Tom Brady in those two Super Bowls with not overwhelmingly great rosters. Because the first time he won the Super Bowl, the Giants were 10-6. and six, And the second time they won the Super Bowl, the Giants were a 9-7 wildcard team, okay? You know, Eli Manning, Eli Manning had to go on the road and beat the likes of Brett Favre, Tony Romo, Aaron Rodgers. He had to beat a lot of good teams to win these Super Bowls. And obviously, he knocked off the undefeated Patriots and beat Tom Brady. Not once, but twice in Super Bowls, okay? And by the way, I'm very aware that Ben Roethlisberger has won two Super Bowls. I just pointed out the fact that Eli Manning has two Super Bowl MVPs, and Ben Roethlisberger has zero because, well, that's a fact. Ben Roethlisberger doesn't have any Super Bowl MVPs. Should he have gotten Super Bowl MVP in the second Super Bowl that he won, in my opinion? I think so. But in reality, Ben Roethlisberger, unfortunately, up to this point in his career, has zero Super Bowl MVPs, but he does have, he does have two Super Bowl victories. You know, and I've always kind of said that Eli Manning, you know, he's been more durable than Ben Roethlisberger throughout his career. He once, a long time ago, played 210 consecutive games, which is amazing. Eli Manning, if you're talking durability, he's got Roethlisberger beat. And I said that Eli Manning also has been a better leader up to this point in his career than Ben Roethlisberger because Ben Roethlisberger for a long time, you know, he was kind of a teammate that was a little moody, and he also has, has in the past, gone on different radio stations and aired out his teammates, something Eli Manning never did. However, I've changed my mind because I've always kind of thought, what if Eli Manning had the teams that Ben Roethlisberger had? He could have won more Super Bowls than Ben Roethlisberger. And that might be true, but I also said, you know, what if Cam Newton went to a team where he was coached by Bill Belichick? And in reality, it looks like Cam Newton is just not that accurate. You know, I said, what if Carson Wentz got more help this year? When in reality, it looks like Carson Wentz is just not as good as we thought. I'm kind of done with what ifs when it comes to sports, you know. Um, so I've changed my mind. And, you know, for what it's worth, Ben Roethlisberger, when we look at him, um, did Eli Manning have better playoff runs than Ben Roethlisberger in route to getting to his Super Bowls? Probably. But Ben Roethlisberger has been to more Super Bowls than Eli Manning. He's won the same amount. Ben Roethlisberger has a better career winning percentage than Eli Manning by by 18 points. You know, Ben Roethlisberger for his career has won eight, 68% of his games. Eli Manning in the regular season is a 500 quarterback. There's a big gap right there, people. I think I'll take the guy that has gotten to more Super Bowls. I think I'll take the guy that has won 68% of his of his games in the regular season as opposed to the guy that has won 50% of his games in the regular season. Because guess what, people? In order to win a Super Bowl, you have to get to the playoffs first. And Eli Manning in his career, he missed the playoffs a lot. He only made the playoffs six times during his 16-year career. Ben Roethlisberger, in his 17-year career, 
has made the playoffs 11 times, okay? Keep that in mind. And I think that a lot of people can acknowledge that Ben Roethlisberger accumulated his numbers due to him consistently being a top-five quarterback in his prime. Eli Manning, he's accumulated his numbers over time due to consistency and due to the fact that he was an Iron Man. And by the way, I'm not trying to take a shot at Eli Manning. I'm just saying one guy, that guy being Ben Roethlisberger, was a top-five quarterback throughout his prime pretty much you know, all the way through, while Eli Manning was a top-five quarterback maybe once in his career, maybe once or twice. We consider Eli Manning a top-five quarterback. Eli Manning was consistently, sort of like Phillip Rivers, consistently a very good quarterback. Never consistently a great quarterback, at least during the regular season, you know, because Ben Roethlisberger already has passed Eli Manning in career touchdown passes, and he's played in eight less games. He's got 21 career, he's got 21 more career touchdown passes than Eli Manning, despite playing in eight less games. Ben Roethlisberger for his career has 387 career touchdown passes. Eli Manning has 366 career touchdown passes. And for what it's worth, I think Ben Roethlisberger could play at a high level for about another three to four seasons. He will continue to add on to those numbers. So, Ben Roethlisberger, he's already beaten Eli Manning in touchdown passes for his career. He's already gotten beat in career yards, 59,079 yards for Ben Roethlisberger's career, 57,023 yards for Eli Manning's career. When we look at completion percentage and passer rating, Ben Roethlisberger has the edge over Eli Manning, 64.5%. As far as completion percentage for Ben Roethlisberger, Eli Manning, he's around 60%. Ben Roethlisberger, he's got the 13th best pass rating of all time. Eli Manning has the 46th best passer rating of all time. He's tied with Joe Flacco. So, could we make the argument that Eli Manning, if you take away one of his Super Bowls, isn't he just a better version of Joe Flacco? If you take away one of Ben Roethlisberger's Super Bowl victories, you probably wouldn't say that he's an all-time great quarterback, but you still think that he's better than Eli Manning. I'll put it to you this way. I've said it once, and I'm going to say it again. If you take away a quarterback's best and worst season, more times than not, the rest of what you have is kind of what they are. And if you take away Eli Manning's best and worst season, He's basically a better version of Joe Flacco. If you take away Ben Roethlisberger's best and worst season, he's probably not an all-time great quarterback, but he's still no doubt about it, a Hall of Famer, and he's still better than a lot of other quarterbacks. He's better than Eli Manning. If you take away his best and worst season, Ben Roethlisberger's been way more consistent than Eli Manning, and I get it. Ben Roethlisberger, for the most part, has been on better teams, and more times than not, some years, he had more talent around him. But if you just watch these guys play, Ben Roethlisberger is just a flat-out more skilled and better quarterback. He's got better traits at his disposal than one Eli Manning. What did Eli Manning do that was special? Because despite him having a pretty strong arm, his arm isn't as strong as Ben Roethlisberger's. So when it comes to the quarterbacks from the 2004 draft class, if I were to rank them, I would have Ben Roethlisberger, number one, Eli Manning, number two, and Phillip Rivers, number three, you know. And keep in mind, Eli Manning led the league in interceptions three times in his career. 
That's the only passing category that he has ever led the entire NFL in at any point in his career. Interceptions. So, as great as Eli Manning was, he's not better than Ben Rousberger. And there is overwhelming evidence at this point that Ben Rousberger is the best quarterback from the 2004 NFL draft class. Pretty low class, though, I would say, because Phillip Rivers, Eli Manning, and Ben Rousberger, when it's all said and done, we can see all three of those quarterbacks in the Hall of Fame at some point in the near future. So I talked about Ben Roethlisberger and Eli Manning. I want to now talk about Phillip Rivers because I want to tackle the question, is Phillip Rivers a Hall of Famer? And I put a lot of thought into this segment. And I will say, if you asked me this question roughly about six months ago, I would have told you that Phillip Rivers is not a Hall of Famer. He would not have gotten my vote about six months ago. But I will say, as I speak today, if I had a Hall of Fame vote, I would vote Phillip Rivers into the Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not saying Phillip Rivers is a first ballot Hall of Famer, but I think he deserves to get in. You know, if you're a Hall of Famer, you're a Hall of Famer point blank period, no matter what ballot you get in on, in my opinion, okay? Now, when it comes to the criteria for a Hall of Famer, I look at did you sustain did you sustain success for a long period of time? Were you a dominant player? What did you accomplish? And can you tell the NFL story without the player you are evaluating? And listen, Phillip Rivers barely gets into the Hall of Fame, in my opinion, because he actually doesn't check a whole lot of those boxes. Because Phillip Rivers hasn't won a Super Bowl. You know, in the playoffs, for Phillip Rivers' career, he's he's got a 5-6 and six record, 59% completion percentage, 84 pass rating. That's nothing to write home about. Phillip Rivers has never won an NFL MVP. And I do believe you actually can tell the NFL story without mentioning Phillip Rivers. But Phillip Rivers is going to get my vote due to his consistency and due to his longevity. Because Phillip Rivers, as we speak today, at age 38 years old, he's still a quality starting quarterback on a pretty good Indianapolis Colts team that has a chance to make the playoffs in 2020. Now, when it comes to the fact that Phillip Rivers doesn't have a Super Bowl, he he definitely deserves blame. I'm not going to say that he's absolved the blame, you know, because, but let's, but let's be real, people. Keep in mind that Phillip Rivers, for most of his career, played for the Chargers organization, an organization that does not have Super Bowls as their standard. That's not their history. An organization that had Drew Brees once a long time ago at their disposal, and once Drew Brees left the Chargers, he instantly became a Hall of Famer and broke records. Keep in mind, the Chargers are the same organization that Eli Manning avoided in the 2004 NFL Draft. And Eli Manning is going to get voted into the Hall of Fame because he decided to play for the Giants and not the Chargers. Phillip Rivers consistently has never had an A-plus organization, never had an A-plus head coach for a, for a sustained period of time. And he's never really had the parts around him to consistently try to compete for Super Bowls. 
Now he's had some good teams here and there. He's played with Damian Thomason. He's played with Antonio Gates. A couple of years ago, he had a pretty good 12-win uh, Chargers team that got bounced in the playoffs by the Patriots. But for the most part, you, when you look at Phillip Rivers' rosters, they weren't a whole lot to write home about back when he played for the Chargers. And let's just compare Phillip Rivers' numbers in the playoffs to Ben Roethlisberger and Eli Manning, two other guys that have won multiple Super Bowls, while, while Phillip Rivers has not won a Super Bowl. Ben Roethlisberger, in his career in the playoffs, 62% completion percentage, 30 touchdown passes, 24 interceptions, an 86 pass rating, and he's played in 21 playoff games. Eli Manning, in his career, in the playoffs, 60.5% completion percentage, 18 touchdown passes to 9 interceptions, an 87 pass rating in 12 career playoff games. Phillip Rivers, 59% completion percentage, 14 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, an 84 pass rating in 11 games played in the playoffs. While you do have Ben Roethlisberger beating Phillip Rivers out in completion percentage, while you do have Eli Manning edging him out in passer rating, the numbers are not that different, in my opinion. And keep in mind, Phillip Rivers did not have the teams that Ben Roethlisberger consistently had when he rolled into the playoffs. Same with Eli Manning. As, as bad as some of those Giants teams were, they were pretty good when, when the playoffs rolled around. The numbers are very eerily similar from an individual perspective, when it comes to Phillip Rivers, Eli Manning, and Ben Roethlisberger, the completion percentage, the passer rating, the touchdown to interception ratio, the, the, there's not a whole lot, there's not that big of a difference. The difference is those teams that Eli Manning and Ben Roethlisberger had, they were much better than Phillip Rivers' teams. So the fact of the matter is that Phillip Rivers never consistently had the team to go out there and win Super Bowls consistently. And when we look at Phillip Rivers' numbers for his career, He's got 411 career touchdown passes. That's good for six all time. That's high, that the only players higher than him are Peyton Manning, Dan Marino, Brett Favre, Drew Brees, and Tom Brady. He's six all time in career passing yards with 61,956 career passing yards. Only five other quarterbacks are better than Phillip Rivers. And it's so weird to me how in the NBA we reward players that have not won championships and put them in the Hall of Fame because of consistency and longevity. Vince Carter is 19th all-time in career points. But I guarantee you a lot of people are going to put him in the Hall of Fame. Carmelo Anthony is 15th all-time in career points in the NBA. Never won a championship. I guarantee you a lot of people are going to give Carmelo Anthony some, some Hall of Fame votes. Chris Paul is 63rd all-time in career points in the NBA. But I guarantee you, he's going to make the Hall of Fame. All those guys would get my vote for the Hall of Fame. Why do we always move the needle with quarterbacks in the NFL? I don't understand it. People can say, Phillip Rivers is a choker. He never won a championship. He's no good. Not a Hall of Famer. Why do we not keep the same energy with the with the NFL players that we do the NBA players because Carmelo Anthony, Vince Carter, and Chris Paul and won a championship. I can name a lot. I can name a lot of guys. And last week, Philip Rivers beat Aaron Rodgers in a very entertaining game. 
in the regular season. And you want to know why he did that? He didn't He didn't beat Aaron Rodgers because he's a better quarterback than Aaron Rodgers. Anyone that thinks that Phillip Rivers is a better quarterback than Aaron Rodgers, they don't know what they're talking about. They're flat out wrong. But Phillip Rivers beat Aaron Rodgers because on that Sunday, his team had the better offensive line, had the better defense, had the better run game, and had the better rep, had the better weapons, and arguably had a better coaching staff. See, people, when Phillip Rivers has the requisite things that he needs, he can beat the Aaron Rodgers of the world. Guys, we've seen Jared Goff, Jimmy Garoppolo, Nick Foles, a washed-up Peyton Manning get to and win Super Bowls over the past couple of years. You mean to tell me a prime Phillip Rivers is worse than those guys? I think you're crazy. Rings are team accomplishments. Philip Rivers should not be should not be knocked for not winning a championship. He very well could maybe win a championship in Indianapolis if things bounce his way in the playoffs if he makes it there. Okay, Indianapolis is a pretty good roster, pretty good coaching staff. But see, here's the thing, man. When we look at some of the other quarterbacks in the Hall of Fame, George Blanda, he's got a career forty seven point seven. Completion percentage. He has thrown 236 career touchdown passes and 277 interceptions and has a 53 and 50 and 1 record. And he's in the Hall of Fame. Joe Namath was a below 500 quarterback record wise and he's in the Hall of Fame. Philip Rivers, he's above 500. Warren Moon, one game above 500. And he's in the Hall of Fame. Why can't Philip Rivers get in the Hall of Fame? So, look, people, I understand the argument for Philip Rivers not making the Hall of Fame, but here's the facts. Only five other quarterbacks in NFL history, as of right now, at the time of the at the, at the time I'm putting out this video, only five other quarterbacks have more career passing yards and more career touchdown passes. Then one Phillip Rivers. And we're putting guys like George Blanda and Joe Namath and Warren Moon in the Hall of Fame and not Phillip Rivers. And we could put guys like Carmelo Anthony and Chris Paul and Vince Carter in the NBA Hall of Fame when those guys have a wild championship. It's messed up. And let's also not forget that Phillip Rivers beat Peyton Manning twice. In the playoffs, not once, but twice. Peyton Manning is one of the three greatest quarterbacks of all time. That should count, people. So in reality, I think that Phillip Rivers deserves to be an NFL Hall of Famer for all the reasons that I mentioned. Okay, let me shift to the LA Rams. This is a team that I whiffed on. I was not a big believer in the Rams in the offseason, I felt they were not going to be very good in 2020. I was completely wrong. This team right now is 7-4. and four, And despite their loss to the 49ers recently, I'm sold that the Los Angeles Rams are a Super Bowl contender. You know, I don't want to get too turned off by that 49ers loss just because, you know, they came off an emotional win versus Tampa Bay. They're playing a division rival. You know, Kyle Shanahan seems to have Sean McVay's number. And for what it's worth, the 49ers, when they're healthy, they're a pretty good football team. I'm not going to overreact to a loss 
that the Rams had to the 49ers, who are a pretty good team when healthy, who are just having a down year this year, you know? Um, you can make the argument right now that the Los Angeles Rams are the second best team in the NFC behind the New Orleans Saints. Now, Green Bay is really good. Seattle is really good. I'm not trying to rank these teams right now. All I'm saying is the LA Rams are as good as the Green Bays, the Seattles, the Arizonas, and the Tampa Bays of the world. They're pretty good, okay? Now, I think New Orleans is the, is the best team in the NFC. They've got a very good offensive line, very good defensive line. Their wide receiver core is pretty good. They've got one of the best running backs in the NFL, Alvin Kamara. And for what it's worth, over the last two seasons, they're 7-0 and without Drew Brees. They can win games without a Hall of Fame quarterback. They're really good. They're a stacked roster. But the Rams, they're pretty good, man. They really don't have a weakness. You know, if you pressure Jared Goff and get him uncomfortable and get him off a spot, you maybe can bother Jared Goff. And that that you could say that might be the weakness of the team is if you get pressure on Jared Goff, he doesn't play that well. But Jared Goff, when he was uncomfortable last week versus Tampa, he threw the ball 51 times and led the Rams to victory. So Jared Goff has proven this season that when he's uncomfortable and when he, and when he has to throw the ball 51 times, he can beat you. Now, is that going to be the formula every week? No, because I don't want Jared Goff throwing the ball 51 times consistently. But if he throws the ball 25 to 30 times, I'm okay with that. Jared Goff's a proven quarterback. He's proven he can get to a Super Bowl, you know. And folks, we're two years removed from Jared Goff being an MVP candidate and leading the Los Angeles Rams to a Super Bowl. Jared Goff has proven he can be clutch in these big games and show up in the biggest moments. Now, when he gets to the Super Bowl, that's a different story, but he can at least get to, to a Super Bowl, okay? You know, so if Jared Goff is the weakness of this Rams team, I'm okay with that because there's a lot worse quarterbacks out there than Jared Goff, okay? Sean McVay is an excellent coach, Cooper Cup, Robert Woods, Reynolds, Everett, Higby, Van Jefferson. They've got good wide receivers, good tight ends across the board. Uh, Daryl Henderson, Malcolm Brown, Cam Akers are three really good running backs. And this L.A. Rams team has a very good defense. Jalen Ramsey's the best quarterback in the entire NFL. Aaron Donald is the best defensive player in all football. This defense right now is second in total defense. They're fourth in points per game allowed. They're only averaging 19.2 points per game on the season. I got to say, man, this Los Angeles Rams team is legit, man. I, I am all in on the Los Angeles Rams being a Super Bowl caliber team. They have all the ingredients and they have all the pieces needed. This is a team that's more than capable of winning the NFC. Will it happen? Maybe, maybe not. We shall see. But I think we got to start giving Jared Goff and the Los Angeles Rams a little bit more respect. They're definitely a Super Bowl sleeper right now, in my opinion. They definitely can beat the Green Bays of the world. They definitely can beat the Tampas of the world. They definitely can beat the Seattles of the world. And honestly, I think they match up very well with New Orleans. You know, if you take away Michael Thomas... The Saints really don't have a second punch outside of Emmanuel Sanders, who's good but not great, you know. And we've seen Jared Goff go into the Superdome and outplay Drew Brees two seasons ago. A lot of people want to talk about the fact that the Saints got robbed in that L.A. Rams NFC Championship game, but they don't want to talk about the fact that Jared Goff flat-out outplayed Drew Brees. So that's where I'm at with the Los Angeles Rams. They have all the ingredients to win, this, to win Super Bowl 55, in my opinion. So earlier I talked about the 2004 NFL Draft. Now I'm going to zero in on the 2016 
NFL Draft. A draft that produced Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, and Dak Prescott. I'm going to evaluate all three of these quarterbacks from this draft class. These are the three best quarterbacks from that draft class, and I will rank them. Well, actually, I'm not going to rank them. I'm going to tell you who, in my opinion, is the best quarterback out of the three up to this point in their career five years in. You know, we compared Ben Rosberger, uh, Phillip Rivers, and Eli Manning a, a couple of segments ago. We'll compare Goff, Wentz, and Dak Prescott right now. And I'll tell you who's the best out of the, out of the three. Okay, I'm not going to rank these from one to three, but I will tell you who's the best in my opinion. When we look at Dak Prescott, the guy has won 60.8% of his games. In his career, he's won Rookie of the Year. He's a two-time Pro Bowler. He's got a 97.3 pass rating for his career. He's completed 66% of his throws up to this point in his career. He's thrown for 106 touchdown passes and has 40 interceptions so far through 69 career games. Carson Wentz, he's won 53% of his games. He's a one-time Pro Bowler. He's thrown for 111 touchdown passes, 49 interceptions, and completed 63% of his throws in 66 career starts. And he also has a 89 pass rating. Not to mention, he's led the NFL in QBR in the past. He led the NFL in QBR in 2017. But this year, Carson Wentz leads the NFL in interceptions and turnovers as well. So... You've gotten a lot of good. You've gotten a lot of bad from Carson Wentz at times. Jared Goff. Jared Goff has won 62.5% of his games. He's a two-time Pro Bowler. He's completed 63% of his throws. He has thrown 103 career touchdown passes in his career up to this point. 50 interceptions, a 92.5 pass rating. In 64 career starts, not to mention he's also been to a Super Bowl in the past. And in that Super Bowl, he lost to the New England Patriots 13-3. Now, I believe Jared Goff is the best quarterback, at least so far, five years in up to this point. Jared Goff is the best quarterback from the 2016 NFL Draft class. While Jared Goff might not be as physically talented as Carson Wentz, while he may not be the athlete that Dak Prescott is quite, not saying Dak Prescott's an elite athlete, but I think that Dak Prescott's more mobile than um, Jared Goff. One thing I get from Jared Goff is consistency. And I mean, he shows up in big games. He time and time again has shown up in big games. Now in the Super Bowl, he came up small. but He's the only quarterback out of these three that has gotten to a Super Bowl. And Carson Wentz has played on some good teams. Dak Prescott, he's had some talent around him. He's the only one that's gotten to a Super Bowl. And keep in mind, Jared Goff went on the road two years ago and outplayed Drew Brees in the Superdome. Are you sure Dak Prescott is capable of doing that? Are you sure Carson Wentz is capable of doing that? Dak Prescott has not been good versus winning teams the past three years. And Carson Wentz, He's a shell of himself right now. I don't know if Dak Prescott and Carson Wentz have that it factor to go on the road and beat Drew Brees on the road in a playoff game. I don't know if they can do that. 
I know Jared Goff can. And Jared Goff, honestly, was a Brandon Cooks drop touchdown pass away from maybe being Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. Jared Goff threw a perfect ball to Brandon Cooks with four minutes left to go in the Super Bowl. That would have broken the game open. That would have allowed the Rams to get a touchdown. And they very well could have beaten the Patriots. Now, again, I'm not defending Jared Goff throughout that game. But in the moment of truth, Jared Goff threw a perfect pass to Brandon Cooks that was not complete. It was a, it was a great play. It was a great play by the defender. And Brandon Cooks couldn't come up with the ball. Brandon Cooks comes up with that football. We might be talking about Jared Goff having won a Super Bowl. Okay? You know, and Wentz, Carson Wentz has zero playoff wins. It's never had back-to-back -back winning seasons. Dak Prescott, five years in, he's got one playoff victory. And Jared Goff on his way to getting to that Super Bowl versus Tom Brady, do you know who he beat? He beat Dak Prescott in the Dallas Cowboys. And like I mentioned earlier, Dak Prescott, last four years, he is 7-17 seven and 17 versus winning teams. Say what you want about Dak Prescott's roster. Say what you want about his coaching staff. The common denominator is outside of his rookie year, he doesn't beat good teams. And see, people kind of kind of have written Jared Goff, Goff off to a certain degree just because his rookie season was not as strong as Carson Wentz and Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott and Carson Wentz came out swinging their rookie years. Jared Goff, he had a slow start to his career. Five touchdown passes, seven interceptions, and 0-7 as a starter. His rookie season, and let's be and let's be real, people. That season, Jared Goff was not put in a position to succeed. He went to a bad team with not a great coaching staff, and he just wasn't that good. But the minute Jared Goff got Sean McVay to be his head coach, he took off, man. Ever since Jared Goff's rookie year, which was not very good, like I said. He has four straight winning seasons, if you count this year. Because right now, the Rams are 7-4. They're most likely going to the playoffs. They're going to have a winning season, no doubt about it. Um, unless Jared Goff gets injured or something like that, okay? Um, Jared Goff's worst season since his rookie year was last year. A year in which he went 9-7 and threw for 4,600 yards. Right now, Jared Goff is having a very good season. The Rams, they're 7-4 right now. They're playing good football. And I can make the argument that, if, that when given a clean pocket, Jared Goff throws one of the best deep balls in the entire NFL. His deep ball is better than Dak Prescott, and it's better than Carson Wentz. I'm just sorry. That's what my eyes tell me. Jared Goff throws a beautiful deep ball. So when it comes to the 2016 quarterbacks that were drafted, I'm going to say the number one overall pick from that draft class, that guy being Jared Goff, he's the best quarterback from that draft class five years into his career. And again, if you want to say Dak and Wentz are a little bit more talented than Goff, fine. You can say that if you want. But I think that Jared Goff has those big game intangibles that Carson Wentz and Dak Prescott just flat out don't have. And it's not like Jared Goff's a bum. The guy, like I said, throws one of the best deep balls and fade routes in the entire NFL. Better than, better than Carson Wentz and, and Dak Prescott. I'm just saying, man. So Jared Goff, he's been to a Super Bowl. He's been pretty durable. And when given a good roster... He's shown he can at least get you to the dance. He can at least get you to a Super Bowl. Jared Goff has all the intangibles. He's still only 26 years old. And I firmly believe that one day, Sean McVay and Jared Goff are going to win a Super Bowl. They will get back to a Super Bowl eventually down the road. Probably not this year. Probably not next year. But eventually, 
I'm confident that Jared Goff is going to win a Super Bowl. I'm not confident that Dak Prescott's going to win a Super Bowl. I'm not confident that Carson Wentz is going to win a Super Bowl because Carson Wentz, he don't got them intangibles at all. And while Dak Prescott does have the leadership qualities, while he's a pretty good quarterback, sometimes he just doesn't show up in big games. So as I speak today, five years into their careers, when we look at Carson Wentz, Dak Prescott, and Jared Goff, I got to say, I think Jared Goff takes the title as being the best quarterback from the 2016 NFL draft class, at least so far. So let's address Tom Brady and the struggling Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The last two weeks, Tom Brady and the Buccaneers have lost. They lost 27 to 24 to the LA Rams at home, and they also lost to the Kansas City Chiefs 27 to 24 at home. Tampa Bay right now in 2020, they're seven and five, and they're heading into their into their bye week in week 13. Now, I don't want to sugarcoat this anymore. And I said I said a couple weeks ago that Tom Brady is slowly but surely declining. He just is. He's not as dynamic as he once was as a quarterback. He's never been the most flashy guy, never been able to run around like Russell Wilson or Deshaun Watson or Patrick Mahomes, but Tom Brady usually got the job done. But right now, Tom Brady, he looks like an average Joe out there. He really does. He just looks like a plain old quarterback. Nothing special. Tom Brady looks like a 43-year-old quarterback right now. The last two weeks, he struggled. Versus the LA Rams, he completed 54% of his passes, threw for a measly 216 yards, had two interceptions in that game. Versus the versus the Chiefs defense, he he wasn't terrible, but he wasn't anything special. He once again turned the football over multiple times. The last couple of weeks, and really throughout the season, Tom Brady has just struggled versus pressure. He's really struggled to fit the ball in the tight windows. He doesn't have quite the same. He he doesn't have the same arm strength that he had a couple of years ago. And keep in mind, Tom Brady, the last couple of weeks, he's had all his weapons. He's had he's had Chris Godwin. He's had Antonio Brown. He's had Mike Evans. He's had Cameron Bray. He's had Rob Gronkowski. All those guys have been healthy. No excuses. All of them have been healthy. You know, and Tom Brady just hasn't been, has not been getting the job done. And I think right now, Tom Brady is the weak link for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think that he's holding them back, he's holding them back a little bit. I don't want to hear about the offensive line being the weakness. Tom Brady has had more than enough clean pockets this year in 2020. He's had, his offensive line has done a tremendous job. They've, they're a much improved unit. And here's a fact, people. Tom Brady, in the fourth quarter versus the L.A. Rams, with two minutes and 35 seconds left to go, he had one timeout, and he was only down by three points. Tom Brady came up small. He could not convert. He could not get the Buccaneers in field goal position. He came up small. Usually, if you give Tom Brady two minutes and 35 seconds with one timeout down down three in the fourth quarter, more times than not in years past, about four or five years ago, he would bury you. He would close out that game. He couldn't do it. Couldn't do it versus good defense. He's not been good versus good teams all year. The only quality win that Tampa Bay has this year is versus Green Bay, and in that game, Tom Brady did not do anything special. He just had to 
hand the ball off to Ronald Jones. He just had to complete the complete a couple passes because his defense, they did their job versus Aaron Rodgers. Tom Brady was not asked to do a whole lot in that game. They did not win that game because of Tom Brady. They won the game in spite of Tom Brady to a certain degree because, well, really, they didn't need Tom Brady to do anything, okay? But either way, the point I'm trying to make is Tom Brady looks like a 43-year-old quarterback, and that's completely fine because he's defied father time for so long. But we're getting to a point now where it looks like Tom Brady, he might be fading into the sunset, man. He really might. Now, could Tom Brady turn around? Absolutely. No doubt about it. I'm not going to be the guy to doubt Tom Brady. I'm just telling you what I see right now. I see a 43-year-old stationary quarterback that doesn't have the same arm strength that he used to have, a guy that doesn't seem to be comfortable in his new offense, a guy that's trying to get chemistry going with Antonio Brown. It's not working. And overall, he's just not good versus pressure. He's just not been that good versus good teams this year. And among the NFC contending teams in 2020, you got the Seahawks, you got the Packers, you got the Saints, if Drew Brees is healthy. You got the LA Rams. You've even got teams like the Arizona Cardinals. All of those teams have better quarterbacks than the Tampa Bay Buccaneers as we speak today. Tom Brady looks like a 43-year-old quarterback, and that could be concerning for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So I want to shift now to Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown appears to be affecting the Tampa Bay Buccaneers chemistry. We're four games in, and that move has not worked out. It hasn't worked out. Now, to be very clear, that does not automatically mean this is going to be the case all the way through for the rest of the 2020 NFL season. Tampa Bay very easily could turn things around, and Antonio Brown could get things clicking with Tom Brady and the crew, especially coming off a of bye week, because Tampa Bay, they've got a much needed bye week this week. But we're four games in, and it has not worked. Antonio Brown, in those four games, has 20 catches, um, a whopping 168 passing yards. He's averaging 8.4 yards per catch, and he's got zero touchdowns. He's been a liability for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I said that Antonio Brown is either going to be the, be the reason that Tampa Bay wins the Super Bowl or he could be the reason this team implodes. Now, to be very fair to Antonio Brown, he has been a mild citizen. He has not been a locker room cancer. He has not been the bad guy. He has not been a diva like he has been in the past. He's been very unselfish. He hasn't said anything wrong, you know, to the media. He's been saying all the right things. He's been a mild citizen, like I said. And for what it's worth, Antonio Brown might be rusty, and he might be trying to, you know, get back in the swing of things. But listen, if you're Tampa Bay this year, you're trying to win a Super Bowl. You don't have time for Antonio Brown to be trying to get create chemistry with Tom Brady. Either it works or it doesn't. And I'm going to guess that this is probably not going to work, okay, because like I mentioned earlier, if you're Tampa Bay, you don't have time. You have to win football games. Right now, Tampa Bay is on pace to be a wild card team. And that's not what you want heading into the playoffs. Because ever since 2000, there have only been four teams that have won the Super Bowl as a wild card. And Tampa Bay, I'm sorry, but if you're going on the road to, to face Seattle or Green Bay or maybe New Orleans, it's going to be hard for me to pick you. So, in the end, 
It looks like the Antonio Brown move might be a flop for Tampa Bay. Not saying that, that Antonio Brown and Tampa Bay can't turn things around, but Tom Brady and Antonio Brown have not been on the same page up to this point. And Tom Brady is to blame. Because guess what? Bruce Arians initially, he didn't want Antonio Brown in town. The only reason why Antonio Brown is on the roster is because Tom Brady wanted him. And Tom Brady, he has to lay in the bed that he made. He has to lay in the bed that he made. And so far, he and Antonio Brown have not clicked at all. They just haven't. It's not working through four games. Not saying that it's going to not work forever. But as of right now, Antonio Brown seems to be affecting the Tampa Bay Buccaneers chemistry. And honestly, in my opinion, I think that was a dumb move for Antonio Brown to be added to this roster on the part of Tom Brady. Tom Brady bringing Antonio Brown to Tampa Bay, I understand the move, but it's a move that I probably would not have made because, man, you've got some really good weapons. Chris Godwin, Cameron Brate, Mike Evans, Rob Gronkowski, they're pretty good. You were just starting to get chemistry with the Sky Millers and Tyler Johnsons of the world. When you bring in Antonio Brown to your roster, you know you're going to have to target the guy. You know he's going to want his touches. And it seems like Tampa Bay is trying to make Antonio Brown a priority in this offense. It seems like Tom Brady's trying to force deep balls to him. And Brady and, and, and Antonio Brown have not connected so far. So we'll see how this plays out. But so far, it's not looking good for Tampa Bay and Antonio Brown as we speak right now. So, I'm going to answer this question right now. Should the Philadelphia Eagles bench Carson Wentz heading into their Week 13 matchup versus the Green Bay Packers in 2020? Should they bench Carson Wentz? I'm going to say yes. You need to bench Carson Wentz. There's no other way around it, people. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. You need to bench Carson Wentz. Now, I doubt that the Philadelphia Eagles are going to do it because they're pretty much tied to Carson Wentz based on his contract. It's pretty much virtually impossible to move on from Carson Wentz. They're stuck with the guy. Folks, Carson Wentz has been bad. Can Jalen Hurts do any worse than Carson Wentz? That's my mindset. Jalen Hurts cannot be worse than Carson Wentz. I will be shocked if he's worse than what Carson Wentz is giving you on Sundays. As we speak today, Carson Wentz is just not that good. He stinks. He's awful. I'm not saying he's going to be that way for his entire career. I'm not saying he can't turn it around eventually. But right now, the guy has played like garbage. He's been awful. Carson Wentz on the year, 58% completion percentage, 16 touchdowns, 15 interceptions, at least the NFL, by the way, a 73 Point four pass rating, 11 games played. Not to mention, he's got 10 fumbles on the year. Versus the Seattle Seahawks, this past week, a team that is one of the worst defenses in the entire NFL, Carson Wentz could not move the football. And I understand there were some drops. I understand his offensive line has not been all that great this year. I understand this team is 3-7-1 right now. But people... You cannot tell me that Carson Wentz is not the guy to blame right here. He's just been flat out awful. I don't even think it matters if his offensive line is, is good. I don't think it's even going to matter if his wide receiver core plays better. Okay? 
He's just flat out been missing the throws. He's been making poor decisions. Over 13 of his turnovers on the year have been in Eagles territory. That's awful. How can Jalen Hurts be worse than Carson Wentz? And listen, you drafted Jalen Hurts in the second round. You spent a lot of draft capital on the guy. Maybe not a lot of draft capital. That's probably the wrong word to say. But you spent a significant draft pick on Jalen Hurts. Second round picks are hard to come by in trades these days. You spent a pretty, you know, hefty draft pick on Jalen Hurts. Don't you think you need to at least see what you have eventually? Because when it comes to quarterbacks, unless they're unless they're trying to make Jalen Hurts a full-time backup, usually after about three years, you make a decision on whether you want to extend a quarterback to their fifth-year option. Okay? So at some point, you got to see what you have in Jalen Hurts. He cannot be worse than Carson Wentz. And in all honesty, people, I think that Doug Peterson and the coaching staff and the players, I think they've lost faith in Carson Wentz. I really do firmly believe that. You know, that might not be true, but that's what it seems like. It seems like Doug Peterson just flat out doesn't want to coach Carson Wentz anymore. It seems like he's done with the guy. It seems like he says, no matter what plays I call, this guy can't execute him. So I would start Jalen Hurts, man. This division is still winnable. This team needs a spark plug, and they need to upgrade a quarterback. I'm not saying Jalen Hurts is going to light the world on fire, but in Jalen Hurts' final year at Oklahoma, he was a pretty accurate quarterback. He made good decisions. He ran the football effectively. He scored a lot of touchdowns. He led Oklahoma to the playoffs. This is a guy that at Alabama went to two straight national championships. I don't think for one second the moment is going to be too big for Jalen Hurts because he's played in two national championships. Like I said, he played a lot of big games at Alabama and at Oklahoma. Now again, I don't think Doug Peterson is going to make this move. So, you know, it's whatever. But if I were in Doug Peterson's shoes, I would hold Carson Wentz accountable. I would say, you're getting benched this week. We need to insert Jalen Hurts and see what he has. And listen, if Jalen Hurts plays badly, then you can go right back to Carson Wentz if you think that he's the guy. But listen, you need to hold Carson Wentz accountable. Part of the reason why Carson Wentz, in my opinion, is struggling and in over his head is just because you know, he's not been held accountable. He's been told by a bunch of people, oh, it's the offensive line's fault. It's the wide receiver's fault. Doug Peterson sucks. You know, Carson Wentz deserves a pass. When in reality, he stinks. He's not that good right now. He's He's been terrible this year. So that's how, that's how I feel about Carson Wentz and Jalen Hurts. This week, I would bench Carson Wentz. I would start Jalen Hurts because in reality, at this point right now, Jalen Hurts cannot do any worse than Carson Wentz. And once again, I would consider benching Carson Wentz in favor of Jalen Hurts. Speaking of Carson Wentz and the Philadelphia Eagles once again, Carson Wentz is the Philadelphia Eagles' biggest problem as I speak today. Not Doug Peterson. Eagles fans, do me a favor. Please stop saying Doug Peterson is your biggest problem. Now, again, let me be very clear. I'm not trying to absolve Doug Peterson from any blame because he deserves some blame for this Eagles team underperforming this year in 2020. At times, his play calling has not been the best. At times, he's been way too aggressive. The Eagles offense does lack some creativity. Sometimes, I think that he should run the football more effectively. 
you know, with um Miles Sanders and Boston Scott, he should call more running plays. And for what it's worth, the Eagles are three, seven, and one. And a lot of people thought they could win about ten games this year. That's underperforming. The coaching staff deserves some of that blame. No doubt about it. One hundred percent. But the idea that Doug Peterson is ruining Carson Wentz and the fact that Eagles fans have the, have the audacity to say that Doug Peterson is the biggest problem for this team and not Carson Wentz is laughable to me. It really is. First of all, were Eagles fans making that argument that Doug Peterson was the problem when Doug Peterson had to make adjustments as a head coach when Carson Wentz went down due to injury in 2017 and Doug Peterson and Nick Foles led this team to a Super Bowl? Doug Peterson outcoached Bill Belichick in the Super Bowl. He outcoached Bill Belichick. Point blank, period. That's not arguable. In 2018, when Carson Wentz was 5-6 and six as a starter and went down due to injury, were Eagles fans blaming Doug Peterson then? I hope not, because if they were, that was wrong. The Eagles won three straight games with Nick Foles and got to the playoffs. In fact, they won a playoff game at Chicago and they were all Sean Jeffrey completed pass away from going to the NFC Championship game potentially. If all Sean Jeffrey catches that pass with about a minute left to go in the game versus New Orleans, Philadelphia very well could have knocked off New Orleans and they would have been facing the LA Rams in the NFC Championship game more than likely. Guys, there's no other way to slice it. Carson Wentz has been one of, if not the worst, Starting quarterback in 2020, over 13 of his turnovers have been in Eagles territory this year. If a player is not executing the plays you are running as a head coach, you're just not going to win. Bill Belichick, for his entire coaching career, without Tom Brady, he's got a below 500 record. Was Bill Belichick lighting the world on fire back when he was in Cleveland when he did not consistently have good quarterback play? No, he wasn't. That's the greatest head coach of all time. You want to know why he was failing? Oh, because he didn't have a quarterback to execute the plays that he was running. Quarterback play matters. Let me let me list you off the teams that finished last in their division last season. The Dolphins, the Chargers, the Bengals, the Jaguars, Washington, Arizona, Detroit, and Carolina all finished last in their division in 2019. Do you know what all those teams have in common outside of Jacksonville and Arizona? All those teams had awful quarterback play in 2019. You know, Kyler Murray was pretty good last year on a bad team, and Gardner Minshew last year was pretty good on a bad team. That's why I singled out Jacksonville and Arizona. But for the most part, if you have a quarterback that stinks, you're not going to win games. So, people... Stop saying Doug Peterson is the problem. We've seen Doug Peterson coach his way to winning a Super Bowl. Carson Wentz has yet to have back-to-back winning seasons. Has not won a playoff game. Has consistently at times been injured. Now, last year Carson Wentz stayed healthy, and this year Carson Wentz has been healthy. But for the most part throughout his career, he's been banged up a lot. He's missed some games. And Nick Foles has won games. With Doug Peterson. So Doug Peterson has shown he can win games with multiple quarterbacks. He doesn't need Carson Wentz to win a Super Bowl. He's already proven that. 
Carson Wentz has proven nothing. Carson Wentz right now is not a top 10 quarterback. Doug Peterson, as of right now, despite his struggles, he is still a top 10 head coach. I'm willing to battle with people in the comment section. I'm willing to see who wants to name 10 head coaches right now that are better than Doug Peterson. Just because Doug Peterson is having a bad coaching season, that does not make him a bad head coach. And by the way, you can make the same argument for Carson Wentz. Maybe this is a year where Carson Wentz is just not performing at a high level. Maybe next year he'll light the world on fire. But the idea that Doug Peterson is the biggest problem for the Philadelphia Eagles and not Carson Wentz, it is laughable and it is wrong. Carson Wentz deserves the most blame for the Philadelphia Eagles' struggles, not Doug Peterson. Okay, let me shift to that bad man over in Green Bay, Wisconsin. That guy being Aaron Rodgers. So this past week, the Green Bay Packers defeated the Chicago Bears at home 41-25 to during Week 12 of the 2020 NFL season. And in that game versus Chicago, Aaron Rodgers was phenomenal. He completed 72% of his passes, had four touchdowns, no interceptions, and a pass rating of 132.2. And Aaron Rodgers in that game became one of 11 quarterbacks in NFL history to eclipse 5,000 career passing yards. He is currently three touchdown passes away from 400 career touchdown passes. Right now, he's seventh all-time in touchdown passes in NFL history for his career. Aaron Rodgers, we all know that he's that he's a two-time NFL MVP. He very well could win the NFL MVP this year if he continues to play at a high level. Despite being 37 years old, Aaron Rodgers, he looks better than ever. You know, he's great. He's won a Super Bowl in the past. He's probably the most talented quarterback in NFL history. He's great. You know, he's an all-time great quarterback. Maybe a top-five quarterback of all time, in my opinion, at least. But see, here's the thing. When it comes to Bears versus Packers, for a long time, I thought that was a rivalry. As I speak today, I think the Green Bay Packers versus Chicago Bears rivalry is dead. It is dead right now. And the reason why it's dead is because Aaron Rodgers has single-handedly made the Chicago Bears versus Green Bay Packers rivalry irrelevant. He has. Aaron Rodgers has owned the Chicago Bears throughout his career. Aaron Rodgers, in his career versus the Chicago Bears, has a 20-5 and record. That's 20 wins and 5 losses in those 25 games. He's completed 66% of his passes, thrown 51 touchdown passes to 10 interceptions, and posted a 105.3 passer rating. He's been off the charts versus the Chicago Bears in his career, and he single-handedly made that rivalry irrelevant. Remember a couple years ago when Aaron Rodgers went to Soldier Field and beat the Chicago Bears in the playoffs on the road? Chicago had an opportunity to go to the Super Bowl that year. But Aaron Rodgers, he said, nope, hold my beer, Chicago Bears fans. Not so fast. Re remember the time Aaron Rodgers 
you know, returned from collarbone surgery, I believe in week number 17 in Chicago. He, re he returned to that game. He played excellent. Everyone remembers that touchdown pass they threw to Randall Cobb to win the game and sent Chicago home and smashed their playoff hopes. Aaron Rodgers has owned the Chicago Bears in his career. And before Aaron Rodgers started a single game for the Green Bay Packers, the Chicago Bears were 90, 80, and 6 versus the Green Bay Packers. They had beaten the Green Bay Packers 90 times. Green Bay had beaten Chicago 80 times. They tied six times, obviously. Green Bay only won 45% of their games versus the Chicago Bears before Aaron Rodgers became the starter. Ever since Aaron Rodgers took over for Brett Favre in Green Bay, the script has completely flipped because as of right now, 25 games later, the Green Bay Packers now lead the series versus Chicago all time. Chicago is 95-106 versus Green Bay. That's 95 wins, 100 losses, and both, team, and, and both teams have tied six times, okay? So Green Bay went from having a 80-90-6 and six record versus Chicago to leading the all-time series versus Chicago. The Chicago Bears no longer lead the series. Green Bay now has an advantage in that regard. Green Bay is 195-6 all-time versus Chicago. Aaron Rodgers has completely flipped the script. Once again, Green Bay has 100 wins, 95 losses, and six ties versus Chicago, okay? So Aaron Rodgers, he's completely flipped the script in Green Bay, Wisconsin, in regards to when they go against Chicago, you probably know who's going to win. You're probably going to take Aaron Rodgers and the Packers to beat the Chicago Bears. A long time ago, everyone anticipated, ooh, Bears versus Packers, who's going to win? More times than not, as long as Aaron Rodgers is playing at a high level, we know who's going to win that game more than likely. You know, Chicago every now and then, they'll give Aaron Rodgers some fits. But for the most part, Aaron Rodgers, he's absolutely owned the Chicago Bears throughout his career. And Aaron Rodgers has single-handedly made the Chicago Bears versus Green Bay Packers rivalry irrelevant. An all-time historic rivalry has now been made irrelevant, all because of Aaron Rodgers. Listen, Chicago Bears can clap back at me all they want. Guess what? A rivalry is not a rivalry if one team continues to defeat the other. Over the last 25 games versus Green Bay, including the playoffs, Chicago has five wins. That's pitiful. That's awful. That's not a rivalry. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, as long as Aaron Rodgers is playing, in a, playing at an elite level, the Chicago Bears of the world, the Detroit Lions of the world, the Minnesota Vikings of the world, they have no chance in the NFC North. As far as I'm concerned, Aaron Rodgers has single-handedly made an historic rivalry irrelevant. I no longer consider Chicago versus Green Bay to be a rivalry. I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings, but that's my honest belief, and that's how I feel. Speaking of the Chicago Bears, they just got destroyed and mollywopped and curb stomped and beat, and they got beat down by the Green Bay Packers on Sunday Night Football in Week 12 
of the 2020 NFL season. They lost that game 41-25, to but at one point in the game, Green Bay was actually up 41-10. to A lot of Chicago's points came in garbage time. Um, Chicago, they're just not a good football team as we speak today. They've got a 5-6 and six record now. Over the next couple weeks, they face Detroit, Houston. They go on the road to face Minnesota. They go on the road to face Jacksonville. And then they get Green Bay at home once again. But as of right now, it's pretty obvious to me that the Chicago Bears are not a playoff team. And I do not anticipate they will make the playoffs this year. The reason why I say that is because a lot of teams ahead of Chicago in the NFC are just flat out better. Green Bay is better. New Orleans, New Orleans is better. Tampa Bay is better. The Rams are better. The Seahawks are better. The Cardinals are better. Heck, even the Minnesota Vikings, as, as of right now, are playing better football. I just named seven teams that are playing better football today than the Chicago Bears. And I didn't even get to the NFC East because the NFC East, whether you like it or not, they're going to get a team into the playoffs. If you win your division, you get into the playoffs. So either New York, Philadelphia, or Washington, they will make the playoffs. So Chicago, you're you're left off the table. There's not enough spots for you. Um, Right now, Chicago's just not a very good football team. You know, all those teams right now are better than Chicago, arguably outside of the teams in the NFC East. And to be completely honest with you, I'm not even sure if that's true. Because if Washington or New York played the Chicago Bears right now today, I would probably favor New York or Washington. They've been playing some good football over the past couple of weeks. Chicago, not so much. They're on a five-game losing streak. They're five and six right now. This Chicago Bears team does not have an identity. And right now, they're negative 34 in point differential. Keep in mind, the two best teams, arguably in all football, the Kansas City Chiefs, they're plus 110. The Pittsburgh Steelers, they're plus 129 in regards to point differential. I'm sorry, but I cannot name the last playoff team that had a negative point differential. I'm sure there's some outliers out there, but for the most part, if you have a negative point differential, you're probably not going to make the playoffs. There's just certain boxes that you need to check in order to be a playoff team, and right now, Chicago, they're, they don't they don't check a lot of those boxes, you know. They are not good enough at quarterback. Mitchell Trubisky, Nick Foles, I'm not sold. They've not been very good this year. The Chicago Bears offensive line has been not very good this year. I told Chicago Bears fans their offensive line was not going to be very good this season. This team has the second worst rushing attack in the entire NFL. Only the New York Jets are worse than Chicago. And right now, Chicago, they're 29th in points per game. I'm sorry, but if you have the 29th best scoring offense, I'm not taking you seriously. You're not a playoff team. This Chicago Bears team in 2020 does not have an identity. They're not good at quarterback. They're not good up front on the offensive line, and that's a problem. Even their defense has not played particularly well the last couple of weeks. Versus Green Bay, I didn't see Cleo Mack anywhere. I didn't see Eddie Jackson doing anything. Chicago's defense got shredded. So, in reality, people, the 2020 Chicago Bears are not a playoff team for all the reasons that I mentioned.
It seems like today I'm going to be the NFL head coach defender, but I'm sorry, people. Right now, I have to defend Matt Nagy, the head coach of the Chicago Bears. Matt Nagy is not the problem with the Chicago Bears. Very similar to Doug Peterson, you know, in Philadelphia. Everyone's calling for Doug Peterson's job. They're acting like he's a terrible head coach, but in reality, Carson Wentz just stinks. The roster's not very good. Doug Peterson is clearly not the problem in Philadelphia. And right now, Matt Nagy is clearly not the problem in Chicago. Now, again, to be very fair, I'm not saying Matt Nagy is perfect because he's not perfect. No NFL head coach is perfect, by the way. Um, he's not the lead head coach by any stretch of the matter. He's not on Sean McVay or, you know, even Kyle Shanahan's level or even Matt LaFleur's level, you know. But Matt Nagy is a very solid head coach. A lot of NFL teams wish they had Matt Nagy as their head coach. I guarantee you, if you put a lie detector to some of these teams, some teams like the Jets, some teams like the Jaguars, they take Matt Nagy in a heartbeat. And I guarantee you, if Matt Nagy were to be fired today by the Chicago Bears, he'd get a lot of job offers. He'd get offers from the Jets. He'd get offers from the Texans. He get offers from the Chargers, and he gets some offers from the Falcons. Again, I have no living proof of that, but I'm just going to speculate that he would get those offers because he's a pretty solid head coach. You could do a whole lot worse than Matt Nagy. Over the last three seasons, Matt Nagy has a 25-18 and 18 record. So he's won 58% of his games. In 2018, the team went 12-4. and They went to the playoffs. He was great that season. Last year, the team took a step back. They were 8-8. Eight and eight. And this year, the team is 5-6. and six. They're probably going to finish anywhere from 7-9 to nine wins on the season. So like I mentioned earlier, the Chicago Bears are not going to the playoffs. They don't check off enough boxes. There's some really good NFC teams out there in Chicago. They don't fit the criteria, in my opinion. They're just not good enough to be a playoff team. They're probably not going to make the playoffs. But folks, Matt Nagy has won 58% of his games three years into his coaching career in Chicago. Do you know how many games Chicago won before Matt Nagy got there? So over the past three years, he's won 25 games. The previous three seasons, Chicago won 14 games. Over that time span, over that three-year three period before Matt Nagy got there, I think it's fair to compare the three years before he got there to the three years since he's gotten there. So we've seen three years of Nagy, and let's compare the three years before Matt Nagy got there. The three years before Matt Nagy got there, Chicago only won 29% of their games. Since Matt Nagy has taken over, he's won 58% of his games. I'd say that's a huge improvement, okay? You know, and listen, here's the thing you need to keep in mind. Matt Nagy is playing in a division with Aaron Rodgers. So he's always behind the eight ball because more times than not, it doesn't matter how good your roster is, Aaron Rodgers is probably going to win that division more times than not because he's just a quarterback that's so talented that he's going to win anywhere from 10 to 13 games every single season. And also, Matt Nagy's never had great quarterback play. I'm sorry, but if Mitchell Trubisky and Nick Foles are your starting quarterbacks, I'm not scared of your football team. Nick Foles has won a Super Bowl. He deserves our respect. But ever since he won that Super Bowl, he has been a shell of himself. That's just a that's a proven fact, okay? And you know what I want to do right now? I want to compare Matt Nagy's career winning percentage to 
a couple of head coaches that you guys might think that Matt Nagy is not better than right now. Okay, so let's compare Matt Nagy to Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson's won a Super Bowl. I say he's a better head coach than Matt Nagy. Doug Peterson, for his career, has won 53% of his games. Matt Nagy, 58%. Kyle Shanahan, who's been to a Super Bowl in the past, who a lot of people think might be a top five head coach right now, guess what? His career winning percentage is at 45%. Advantage, Matt Nagy. Sean McDermott, his career winning percentage is 56%. Advantage, Matt Nagy. Frank Wright, the Indianapolis Colts head coach, his career winning percentage is at 56%. Advantage, Matt Nagy. Mike Zimmer, he's at 58% for his career as far as winning percentage goes. So it's a tie right there. Ron Rivera, a guy has been to a Super Bowl, a guy that gets rave reviews from head coaches. He's at 53% for his career winning percentage. Advantage, Matt Nagy. Bruce Arians, He's at 58% for his career. It's a tie between him and Matt Nagy because both have 58% as far as their career winning percentage. Listen, I'm not trying to tell you that Matt Nagy is better than this head coach, worse than that head coach. All I'm trying to tell you is he's better than you guys think. And I don't care how good of a head coach you are. If you have a terrible quarterback, you're not going to win football games. It's just that plain and simple. And Matt Nagy has not had great quarterback play. That's just the harsh reality that you Chicago Bears fans need to admit. Everyone talks about, what if Sam Darnold had a better head coach? Oh, what if these, what if Daniel Jones had more talent around him? Well, why don't we start thinking about some of these head coaches? What if Matt Nagy was coaching Kyler Murray? What if he was coaching Aaron Rodgers? What if he was coaching Patrick Mahomes? Heck, what if he was coaching Matthew Stafford in Detroit? You mean to tell me he couldn't win games with Matthew Stafford? The guy won 12 games with Mitchell Trubisky starting. Mitchell Trubisky's awful. He's a bust. He's terrible. He's no good. So people, slow down a little bit. Slow down with the Matt Nagy criticism. Matt Nagy is a very solid head coach. And in my opinion, if the Chicago Bears fire Matt Nagy after this year, they will be doing themselves a disservice. Unless they can get a Eric Bieniemy or someone like that on the market, unless they can get a clear-cut upgrade over Matt Nagy, I think that it would be a bad move to fire Matt Nagy because you you know what bad franchises and bad organizations do? They fire head coaches too quickly because they think everything can be a quick fix. You know, oh, we stink this year. Let's get rid of the quarterback. Let's get rid of the head coach. If we get a better quarterback or a better head coach, we'll be a better football team. That's what the, that's what Washington has been doing every single year for decades. That's what the Cleveland Browns have been doing for so many years. That's what the New York Jets have done time and time again. That's what the Jacksonville Jaguars have been doing time and time again. Bad organizations move off of competent coaches and competent quarterbacks way too quickly because they think everything is a quick fix. Remember when people were questioning Mike Vrabel and then when Mike Vrabel made the switch from, uh, what's his name, Marcus Mariota to Ryan Tannehill? He, he goes all the way to an AMC title game. Quarterback play matters, people. Matt Nagy is not the problem in Chicago. You know who you should really blame for the Chicago Bears' struggles? 
You should blame Ryan Pace for not getting the quarterback situation figured out and drafting Mitchell Trubisky over Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes. I believe that Matt Nagy is a solid head coach and he is not the problem with the Chicago Bears as I speak today. So we're heading into week 13 of the 2020 NFL season and things are not looking good for the Baltimore Ravens. The Baltimore Ravens currently are 6-5 heading into week 13 of the 2020 season. And as of right now, if the playoffs started today, and obviously there's still some more football to be played, but if the playoffs start today, the Baltimore Ravens would not be in the postseason. Right now, as, as we speak today, the Steelers, the Chiefs, the Titans, the Bills, the Browns, the Dolphins, Colts, and Raiders are all ahead of the Baltimore Ravens as far as teams that can make the playoffs in that order. Baltimore right now is the ninth seed in the playoffs as we speak today. Now, Baltimore definitely could salvage themselves and make the playoffs. They get Lamar Jackson back this week. Lamar Jackson was was out this past week due to COVID-19 protocols. Uh, so the next couple of weeks, you get, you get, you get to play Dallas. You get to play at Cleveland. You play the Jags. You get the Giants at home. And then you're at Cincinnati without Joe Burrow. Baltimore very easily could actually win out. And they very easily could, you know, only lose about one, maybe two games. But I think it's safe to say that Baltimore right now, they should sort of be concerned with their football team because the Baltimore Ravens have a problem. Their passing attack is just not very dynamic. It's not even close to where it was a season ago. Right now, the Baltimore Ravens, and keep in mind, Lamar Jackson's only missed one game because of COVID. A team with a former league MVP, Lamar Jackson won for MVP last year, a team with the MVP-level quarterback on their roster has the second-worst passing attack statistically in the NFL. Only the New York Jets have a worse passing offense than the Baltimore Ravens, according to statistics, as far as yards per game through the air. That's not good. And that falls on Lamar Jackson, that falls on Greg Roman, and that falls on the wide receivers and the tight ends. Listen, Mark Andrews, he's having a solid season, but sometimes Mark Andrews tends to disappear in big games. Marquise Hollywood Brown, he's been good but he has not taken the necessary leap that you thought that he would have taken. Marquise Hollywood Brown on the year only has 516 yards and three touchdowns. And the Baltimore Ravens have some explaining to do because Marquise Hollywood Brown was the first wide receiver taken in the 2019 NFL Draft. So the Baltimore Ravens, they passed on DK Metcalf, A.J. Brown, and Terry McLaurin and an abundance of other really good wide receivers that are just flat out better than Marquise Hollywood Brown. Up to this point, uh, unless Marquise Hollywood Brown continues to, you know, get better and better, you can make the argument he's a borderline bust. He's just not been all that great throughout his career. He hasn't. He had, a, he had an okay rookie year, and this year he's not taking the necessary step that I thought he would take. And listen, anytime your wide receiver core has a washed-up Des Bryant included in it, 
I, I like Des Bryant. Des Bryant's a good guy. He used to be a dominant wide receiver, and he's still a, a reliable target. But Des Bryant is not the same guy of old. So Des Bryant, he's washed up. Willie Sneed, Marquise Iowa-Brown, they're not cutting it. They're just not. Devin Duvenary and James Prochet, the two wide receivers the Baltimore, the Baltimore Ravens drafted in the 2020 NFL Draft, They've not, they've not been huge factors this year. They just haven't, you know. And Lamar Jackson, he's having a, a solid season. You know, 15 touchdown passes, six interceptions, a 93.4 pass rating. Again, that's not bad. But based on the expectations that I had for Lamar Jackson entering the season, and again, I had high, high expectations. Maybe they were a little bit too high. I think Lamar Jackson is sort of disappointed, you know, this year, you know, he's not having a bad season by any stretch, but Lamar Jackson definitely has left some plays on the table to be desired. He was arguably the best quarterback in, in the regular season last year. This year, you know, he's barely a top 10 quarterback. You know, he's, he's playing good, but he's not been great this year. He's having a good, solid season, but Lamar Jackson just can't be playing good if this Ravens team wants to make it into the playoffs and get over the hump. He's got to play great. He's got to be better. He's got to be more accurate. He's got to make better decisions. He's got to put this team on his back because right now the Baltimore Ravens' back is against the wall. And Lamar Jackson is going to be his job as a former MVP because when you win an MVP, I hold you to a higher standard. It's Lamar Jackson's job to lead this team to the promised land. They've still got, you know, a pretty good team. You know, the sky is not falling in Baltimore. So we'll see if Lamar Jackson can deliver, you know, this team from evil. Will the Baltimore Ravens make the playoffs in 2020? Maybe, maybe not. We shall see. But as of right now, the Baltimore Ravens offense is holding this team back, and the Baltimore Ravens offense is the biggest reason why the Baltimore Ravens are in danger of missing the playoffs in 2020. The defense has been very good from start to finish all season. Outside of playing poorly versus Patrick Mahomes, at home, I believe in week number three. Yes, it was week number three. In week number three, the Baltimore Ravens defense was just not that good. Outside of playing, outside of getting exposed versus Patrick Mahomes, the defense has pretty much been lights out virtually all season. It's the offense that's lagging behind Lamar and Lamar Jackson, Greg Roman, and this wide receiver core, as well as this offensive line, is going to need to play better. The offensive line, especially because. If you give Lamar Jackson time to throw, he'll make good decisions. But this offensive line has taken a step back this year, and that's a big reason why I think this offense is sort of falling behind the eight ball. You know, Marshall Yonder retired. Obviously, Ronnie Stanley's out for the season. That is something that Baltimore cannot control anymore. They're just going to roll with the horses that they've got right now. And we shall see if Lamar Jackson can lead this team to the playoffs. Will they make the playoffs? Maybe, maybe not. Only time will tell, but... The Baltimore Ravens are in danger of missing the 2020 playoffs due to their offense not being up to par up to this point in 2020. Let me shift to Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals. So obviously Joe Burrow is out for the season. He tore his ACL recently in week number 11 of the 2020 NFL season versus the Washington football team. Joe Burrow was having a very good rookie season before he got injured. Through 10 games, his team was 2-7-1. Joe Burrow was completing 65% of his passes, threw for 2,600 
and 88 yards, 13 touchdowns to only five interceptions. And as I speak today, I have to say this, Joe Burrow tearing his ACL versus Washington is a wake-up call to the Cincinnati Bengals organization. They need to fix the offensive line in Cincinnati, and they need to do it fast to protect their franchise quarterback of the future, Joe Burrow. Now, before I dive a little bit deeper into this injury as far as what does it mean for the Cincinnati Bengals going forward, I've heard a lot of people criticize the Cincinnati Bengals coaching staff and the Cincinnati Bengals organization after Joe Burrow got injured. They've been saying, how dare the Cincinnati Bengals ruin Joe Burrow's career? How could you put Joe Burrow behind that terrible Piss poor offensive line. The Bengals have failed Joe Burrow. They don't know how to put any talent around him. And I say to those people, you're wrong. You are flat out wrong. The Cincinnati Bengals have done a very good job of putting good players around Joe Burrow. Have you seen T. Higgins? Have you seen Tyler Boyd? Auden Tate's pretty good. A.J. Green's pretty good. Have you ever heard of Joe Mixon? He's one of the best running backs in all of football. Giovanni Bernard is one of the best backup running backs in the entire NFL. Zach Taylor, he has his flaws. He might get fired by the end of the year, you know, but he's an offensive coach. So Joe Burrow was given an offensive-minded head coach, a top-10 running back, and very good wide receivers entering the NFL. The Bengals also spent the third most money in free agency this past offseason. A lot of people talk about, Oh, the Cincinnati Bengals are cheap. They spend no money. And for the most part, for a while, that was true. But this past season, it wasn't true. And people could talk about, what about the offensive line? The offensive line was so bad. And listen, I'm not trying to make this a joke at all. Because listen, Joe Burrow getting hurt, it's a serious matter. But when we talk about the offensive line, here's the reality, people. If you're a top 10 pick as a quarterback, if if you get picked in the top 10 and you're a quarterback entering the NFL and you go to a team that's picking top 10 in the draft, you're probably going to go to a team with a bad offensive line. Welcome to the NFL, people. Daniel Jones, Dwayne Haskins, Kyler Murray, Justin Herbert, Deshaun Watson, Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, all of those young quarterbacks that were top 10 to top 15 picks, have had to go to bad teams and have had to play behind behind not very good offensive lines at some point in their career. Okay? Welcome to the NFL, people. That's the reality. Even guys like Aaron Rodgers have gotten hurt over the past couple of years, and the Green Bay Packers have done a good job of protecting Aaron Rodgers for the most part. Same thing with Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes got injured last year. His offensive line is pretty good. In fact, Carson Wentz in 2017 suffered the same injury that Joe Burrow suffered. And his offensive line was one of the five best offensive lines in the entire NFL. All I'm trying to say, people, is this. Don't use this as don't use the offensive line as a scapegoat to bash the Cincinnati Bengals because you never know. What could have happened to Joe Burrow, whether his offensive line was good or bad? Now, does his offensive line being terrible, you know, increase the likelihood 
that he probably gets injured? Absolutely. Not trying to dispute that one second. But this idea that the Cincinnati Bengals have failed Joe Burrow or that they should have brought in a veteran quarterback to start in front of Joe Burrow, that is dumb. Joe Burrow, in my opinion, at least before I saw Justin Herbert, was arguably the best quarterback in this draft class. And when you're the number one overall pick, and when you have 20-plus college starts, when you win the Heisman Trophy, when you win a national championship, I expect you to come in day number one and be my starting quarterback. So this idea that the Bengals should have brought back Andy Dalton to start over Joe Burrow, stop. Just stop. Maybe we need to admit the fact that Joe Burrow might be a little injury prone, might be a little fragile. I'm not going to put that label on him because he's a rookie right now, but people, stop sounding stupid, okay? Now, the good news for the Cincinnati Bengals is this. Now that Joe Burrow is out due to injury, it pretty much guarantees the fact that you're going to have one of the top three picks of the 2021 NFL Draft, okay? Right now, it's pretty obvious that the Jets, the Jaguars, and the Bengals will have the top three picks. You know, I think the Jets will probably take a quarterback at number one overall, assuming they don't win a game the rest of the way. And I think the Jaguars will more than likely get that number two overall pick, and they will probably draft a quarterback to replace Gardner Minshew, who I'm not sure if they're sold on, okay? So what does that mean? That means the Cincinnati Bengals have an opportunity to draft Penny Sewell out of Oregon, a generational talent at left tackle, according to most NFL scouts. And this allows Jonah Williams to move to the right side, where I think that he's more comfortable. You know, Jonah Williams was a first-round pick out of Alabama a couple, of, a couple of years ago. He's fine. He's not a bad left tackle. But I think that Jonah Williams would be more suited to be a to be a guard or a right tackle going forward. I think that he would play a lot better at one of those two positions. And you can slide Penny Sewell right in at left tackle, and boom, you got two really good offensive linemen. Now all you need is another guard or two, and your offensive line is pretty much fixed. And what is the Cincinnati Bengals' biggest need right now? Offensive line. They need to protect Joe Burrow. They need to give him more time to throw the football because you don't want Joe Burrow running for his life for his entire career. So you get an opportunity to fix the offensive line immediately with that number three overall pick, probably drafting Penny Sewell out of Oregon. You know, and honestly, Cincinnati, if you need to spend two to three or four draft picks on offensive linemen to ensure that you sure up the offensive line for Joe Burrow, I go ahead and do it 100% because Joe Burrow, he's the best thing going for your franchise. I mentioned earlier how, you know, the offensive line is not very good for Cincinnati. You don't want that to be the case for his entire career because we saw Andrew Luck, you know, not get protection throughout his career. He was forced to retire, you know, early from the NFL because he was just too tired of getting hit, you know. And the Indianapolis Colts for years and years knew their offensive line wasn't very good, and they pretty much just refused to address the offensive line until uh, Andrew Luck's final year in Indianapolis. When it was too late, he already kind of mailed in his decision. So I don't want the Bengals to be in a situation where it's obvious the offensive line needs fixed, and they just ignore that need. If the Cincinnati Bengals are smart, they will address their offensive line in free agency and in the draft during the offseason. In order to get the most out of Joe Burrow, it is imperative that the Cincinnati Bengals address their offensive line sooner rather than later. 
I want to now shift to Tua Tungavailoa. So Tua Tungavailoa versus the Denver Broncos last week was benched. In the game, he went 11 for 20 for a whopping 83 passing yards. He did, th- he did throw for one touchdown. We'll give him credit for that. He also had an 81.9 pass rating. Tua was also sacked six times, and he just wasn't all that impressive versus Denver, you know. Tua Tungabailoa getting benched versus the Denver Broncos, in my opinion, is a red flag. Now, do I agree with the decision? No, I do not. I do not agree with the decision that Brian Flores made to bench Tua Tungabailoa in that situation. Because at some point, you cannot keep babying Tua Tungabailoa. You know, um, at some point, you're going to allow him to go through adversity. You know, let him go through it. You know, is he playing that bad to where you need to bench him? You know, I don't think that Tua, I thought Tua was playing badly, but it did not strike me that Tua was playing bad after get benched, but that's the decision Brian Flores rolled with, and Brian Flores said in the press conference after the game that he felt Ryan Fitzpatrick gave the Miami Dolphins the best chance to win, and that's why he bitched to a tongue of Iloa. Well, excuse me, Brian Flores, and again, I have nothing I have nothing against Brian Flores. I'm not gonna, you know, bash the guy for making this this decision. He's been pulling all the right buttons so far up to this point. The Miami Dolphins, they very well could be a playoff team. So I'm not trying to knock Brian Flores too much. I, I'm a fan of the guy. I think he deserves some coach of the year votes. But why is Tua Tungabaloa starting in the first place if you don't think he gives you the best chance to win? Because as far as I'm concerned, if I'm a player in that locker room, I'm very, I'm questioning what Brian Flores is trying to accomplish. Are you trying to accomplish, you know, rolling out Tua and letting him, you know, go through his lumps and pains? Or are you trying to get this team to the playoffs? Because as far as I'm concerned, I don't know what direction Brian Flores is trying to go in. When Brian Flores bitched Tua and said, Ryan Fitzpatrick gives us the best chance to win, I think to myself, does Brian Flores not think greatness is within Tua Tungabailoa's DNA? Does he think that? Because it's, it comes across as him thinking that. Now, obviously, I think he believes in Tua because they out, they drafted Tua number five overall. But right now, Brian Flores is telling you Tua's not good enough to beat the, beat the Denver Broncos, who are not a very good football team. And listen, I don't know if Tua has that it factor when it comes to big games. Because the minute Tua faced a pass rush, the minute he faced some adversity in the NFL, he was not very good versus Denver. He looked small. He could not fit the ball in the tight windows. He didn't play particularly well. And ultimately, he got benched. And at Alabama, Tua had a very good, very good career at Alabama. But at Alabama, my biggest knock against Tua Tagovailoa was when things got tight. When he was on an even playing field, he struggled versus Clemson in the national title game. He was not very good versus Mississippi State in 2018. He was not very good versus Georgia in the SEC title game in 2018. He was not very good, and he was constantly injured as well. And we've seen 
when Tua's gone against Aaron Donald and the Los Angeles Rams, when he's gone against the Broncos pass rush, he has struggled. And also, Tua Tagovailoa is dealing with injuries once again. I could not find a single player in college football that was in the injury tent more than Tua Tagovailoa in his college career. The guy was constantly hurt. The guy was constantly banged up. The guy was constantly injured. And to me, I didn't see the next Drew Brees. I didn't see the next Russell Wilson like so many scouts told me that he was. I didn't see a generational talent. Right now, I see a small quarterback that's a game manager with an average arm. Now, I will say Tua, he doesn't throw, he doesn't throw interceptions. He's pretty accurate. You can win games with Tua talking about Loa. But can you win a Super Bowl with this guy? I might be asking I might be asking that question way too early in his career. I might be I might be being unfair to Tua just because we haven't seen we haven't even seen this guy play a full 16 game season. And listen, I'm not trying to say Tua can't struggle because all rookie quarterbacks at some point go through growing pains. And Tua, we're gonna find out if he can grow from this. But I'm sorry, I, I don't I'm not all in on Tua. I'm not sold to Tua Tunga Valoa. As of right now, can become a franchise quarterback. And Tua Tungabaloa getting benched is a red flag for all the reasons that I mentioned. So let's shift to the Cleveland Browns. The Cleveland Browns right now are 8-3 heading into week 13 of the 2020 NFL season. They will be the number 5 seed right now if the playoffs started today. The Cleveland Browns have a really talented roster. Their offensive line is very good. Their wide receiver core is pretty good, even though Odell Beckham Jr. is hurt. Jarvis Landry is pretty good. They've got some really good tight ends. They can run the football effectively with Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. And the Cleveland Browns defense has slowly become a very underrated unit. They're only allowing 13.7 points per game over their last four ball games. So Cleveland's very talented, but I gotta say, most of the credit for the Cleveland Browns' success in 2020 should go to Kevin Stefanski, their brand new head coach. Kevin Stefanski appears to be a hit at head coach for the Cleveland Browns. The players have seemed to have bought into what Kevin Stefanski is all about. And I gotta say, man, I think Kevin Stefanski is one of the leading candidates for the 2020 NFL Coach of the Year. He's been that good as a head coach in Cleveland in 2020. What Kevin Stefanski did is he identified very early what his team is and what his team was not. That's very key because that is something that Freddie Kitchens last year just simply could not do. He was over his head. He was a terrible head coach, one of the worst coaches I've ever seen. Kevin Stefanski, the exact opposite. And Kevin Stefanski has taken the pressure off of Baker Mayfield. That's very key because he's not asking Baker Mayfield to carry this offense. And a lot of people knock Baker Mayfield. They say, Baker's no good. He's an average quarterback. And that might be true. I'm not here to make that judgment on Baker Mayfield quite yet. I think Baker Mayfield is better than people give him credit for. But I'll see how I feel about Baker Mayfield after I see him play a playoff game. Then I'll fully judge Baker Mayfield. But Baker Mayfield is being asked to just manage the game. You know, the Cleveland Browns are saying, hey, Baker Mayfield, listen, you don't need to throw the ball 30 or 40 times for us each week. 
We're going to ask you to throw 20 to 25 times. We're going to ask you to be an accurate distributor of the football. We're going to run the football. We're going to control the time of possession. And we're going to run an offense that fits your skill set. That's what Kevin Stefanski has done. And that has been so key for the development of one Baker Mayfield. And Cleveland has found ways to win in multiple different facets, okay? Over the past couple of weeks, the Cleveland Browns have been winning games because of their defense. You know, earlier in the season, Baker Mayfield throws five touchdown passes to beat Cincinnati. Earlier in the season, they they score 49 points in a shootout with the Dallas Cowboys, and they win that football game on the road. And in my opinion right now, you can make the argument that the Cleveland Browns might be the most underrated, you know, contending team in the NFL. I, I know a lot of people talk about the Indianapolis Colts. The Cleveland Browns defeated the Indianapolis Colts. A lot of people are saying the Indianapolis Colts might be a Super Bowl dark horse. You know, I'm not ready to jump on that bandwagon quite yet, but Cleveland is just as good, if not better, than Indianapolis right now. Cleveland is one of the most underrated teams in all of football as I speak today. I think they're a legit playoff team, and Kevin Stefanski is to thank. I think they found their next head coach. For the next decade or two, I think Kevin Stefanski has all the all the requisite tools to become a very good head coach. He's changed the culture in Cleveland, and I think that, I think that he's an early season, you know, uh, 2020 head coach of the year candidate. Kevin Stefanski has been excellent. He's been a great hire up to this point, and the players are bought in. Kevin Stefanski has changed the culture in Cleveland, and it is so exciting to see. Kevin Stefanski is doing a great job in Cleveland. And as I speak today, it looks like the Cleveland Browns are moving in the right direction. They will be a playoff team more than likely in 2020. Well, folks, that's pretty much all I have today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode today. It has been episode number 26 of the Juice Alert. And I'm Ghost. Thank you so much for watching this video today. Please also note that the Juice Alert Sports Podcast is not just a YouTube channel. It is available on all podcasting platforms. This podcast is my favorite thing in the entire world right now. It is my passion. I want more people to listen to this podcast. I really want this podcast to grow. Also, a fun fact about me is that I want to go into the sports broadcasting and media world once I graduate from the University of Toledo. I am looking to become one of the next great sports broadcasters and analysts out in the world. And I potentially would like to start my own network if this podcast really truly grows. Or if I fall short of that goal, I would love to work for a big time network like ESPN or Fox Sports 1. I am open to all networks. So if you believe in my dreams and you see or hear my passion through the screen, be sure to tell all your friends about the Juice Alert Sports Podcast. Have a God-blessed day, and I'm out.